Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Matt Eggers from the investment team at Breakthrough Energy Ventures. BEV is a $1.1 billion venture capital fund dedicated to building companies that will have a massive impact on greenhouse gas mitigation. Unlike traditional VCs, BEV's limited partners consist exclusively of high net worth individuals. This enables them to have longer time horizons, more patient capital, and specifically to go after companies that can have an outsized impact on climate change if they are successful. This is a great discussion. We talk about Matt's background and what led him down the path that he's on and what led him to care about climate change in the first place. We talk about BEV's work, how they make investment decisions, what stage they come in, what types of companies they're most excited about, how they measure impact, and how they're both similar and different to traditional venture capital firms. I should also note that Matt is representing his personal views on the show and not necessarily those of Breakthrough Energy Ventures. I learned a lot in this episode, and you will too. Matt Eggers, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks a lot. Thanks for, for coming. It's been a long time coming to have representation on the show from Breakthrough Energy Ventures. And I mean, to start, I'll just put a little disclaimer that because you guys don't do a ton of public speaking, I don't I don't know if either one of us is exactly sure where we're allowed to go or not go. So we'll probably keep it surface as it relates to BEV itself. But given how much experience you have just in clean tech from all different facets as an investor, as an operator, I thought it, it absolutely made sense to have you come on the show. Awesome. Great to be here. Cool. Well, maybe... For starters, after we got the disclaimer out of the way, what is Breakthrough Energy Ventures? Breakthrough Energy Ventures is an investment fund focused on the climate challenge. So our objective is to generate a solid venture return, return positive returns, good returns to our shareholders, to our investors, and make a very large impact on climate change. Got it. And the LPs, it's a little bit different makeup than a typical fund, right? Because it's it's all... Individual. It's all individuals. And there are there are lots of individuals that invest in funds. I think what's unique about us is it's a large fund with only individual investors. There's no institutions. How did Breakthrough Energy Ventures come about? Bill Gates is the founder of the fund and remains the chairman today and is an investor in the fund. And it originally spun out of his mission innovation project that happened in the same time as the Paris Climate Accords a few years ago. And then this Breakthrough Energy Coalition came out of that which is a number of individuals, institutions, governments, and companies that are trying to impact the climate challenge. Breakthrough Energy Ventures is a fund that's related to all that, but completely separate, that also spun out of, of that work, where a bunch of those folks said, we want to invest in companies that are developing solutions for the climate challenge. And so they created this fund. That's about $1.1 billion in Fund One? Yeah, just over a billion dollars. That's right. Got it. Great. And I mean, I've, I've certainly read... A little bit, and I've seen you guys in some deals and stuff, but from what I can gather, and I definitely want your input on this, but it, it seems like there's, I think it's a half a gigaton threshold for the type of impact that you need to be able, you know, you need to be confident the company can have presuming success. Is that first part right so far? That's right. Half a gigaton. Yeah. But then after that threshold, you're just like any other kind of profit-seeking 
venture fund. That's right. Exactly. Seeking venture returns. And, and like you said, there's a normal venture fund has one objective, venture returns for any given investment. We have two venture returns and half gigaton of GHG impact. But a little longer time horizon on the fund, right? That's true. That's another key difference is we've got a 20-year life. Typical funds are 10-year life, although most funds get extended at least once, if not twice. So they end up being two-year extensions, 12 or 14 years. We, from the get-go, are 20-year fund. Bill Gates and the other investors recognize that when you're trying to transform massive, old, entrenched industrial industries, it often takes longer than, say, building a new enterprise software product. And so the fund has a longer life. And how do you guys think about additionality? It's a good question. We talked about this today, and we've talked about it many times. The objective of the fund is to use the deep scientific and technical expertise, the deep operating expertise folks that are in it, to find technologies, companies, and founders that might not get found or invested in or supported in a very large way otherwise. That said, additionality isn't something that we talk about on a deal-by-deal basis. We don't say, oh, are we the investor of last resort, and so therefore no, this isn't going to get done if we don't do it. We definitely don't do that. But we are looking for things that are innovative, perhaps risky, perhaps off the beaten track, that wouldn't be getting billion-dollar valuations and $300 million rounds from the likes of the, you know, the average or the, the many great VCs on Sand Hill Road. And can you talk a bit about what stage you guys like to come in, typical check size, whether you lead or you don't lead, and just kind of how you think about those syndicates? That's one of the great things about the fund is we have a lot of flexibility. We have great geographic flexibility and stage flexibility. We've done pre-seed investments down to a few hundred thousand dollars. We don't do a lot of those, but we've done it. Typically, we do seed and Series A investments, but we also can do and have come at least in one sort of round into more of a growth investment. We're very flexible on the stage. And like I said, geography and technology and even industry. And do you like to lead or be part of a syndicate or or no preference? We typically lead. We think part of our value add is understanding a lot of, of what these sorts of companies need. We've got great company building expertise and great technical expertise within the fund. Lots of connections to the big companies that could be potential partners and acquirers for these companies. So we prefer to take a, a lead role, which generally means sitting on the board. But we also really do prefer to invest in syndicates. I don't think you'd find an investment other than the very, very small sort of pre-seed deals where we were the only substantial investor in. Again, we know that these companies often take some amount of time and a fair amount of capital. So we like to have other strong investors with deep pockets and great expertise and value add around the table with us. And how do you think about sectors? So we've organized ourselves around what we call the five grand challenges, which are basically just the five areas where most emissions come from. And you could find this data in numerous places on the internet, like from the the EPA and so forth. So they're, they're buildings and infrastructure, electricity generation and distribution, transportation, food and ag, and manufacturing. That also represents almost all of the world economy, and it's almost all the emissions. So we kind of organize ourselves around those areas and try to find solutions in each area. And then in terms of one of the challenges that I've got as kind of a newbie to focusing on climate change and a newbie to climate change investing is I also want to work on stuff that really has potential to matter for the problem, but it's confusing to do this this half a gigaton or a gigaton or just carbon math in general. So I'm not asking you to give away any proprietary 
modeling tricks or algorithms or anything, but just what advice do you have for anyone that's trying to, let's say some listeners are taking a job in a climate-focused company. How should they know how to think about that gigaton impact? And also, just for the general population trying to work in someplace that matters, how important is that gigaton impact as well? I'd say for most people, they they shouldn't think about whether it's a half a gigaton or or 50 megatons or something like that. Our LPs have asked us to focus on those really big breakthroughs, but there are many, many ways to impact climate. 10 companies doing 50 megatons is just as good as one doing 500, right? And we need hundreds and hundreds of these companies and many, many backers investing in them and so forth to meet the climate challenge. So I don't think everyone should use that lens by any stretch. And last question in kind of the general overview section of the of the interview, which is just any example deals that, that you've done or that BEV's done that you're particularly excited about or that would be representative of the, the kind of work that you're doing with the fund? There's many. Let's see. I'll talk about a few. One of my favorites is Pivot Bio. So Pivot is a company that's taking on the fertilizer challenge. Fertilizer is a huge emitter of greenhouse gas. And if we can reduce the use of fertilizer, we'll reduce the greenhouse gas emitted in its in its manufacturing and a lot of other pollution that's terrible for waterways and lakes and so forth. And Pivot has taken a bacteria that naturally occurs in the soil where corn is grown and genetically modified it so that it will produce nitrogen even in the presence of other nitrogen, which normally it shuts down that pathway because it's not energetically necessary for it to create nitrogen when there's already nitrogen in the soil from the application of fertilizer. So now farmers can apply this bug, spray it on their fields, and they can apply a lot less fertilizer. And the bug creating the bug is a tiny, tiny fraction of the greenhouse gas emissions from creating that same amount of fertilizer. With later generations, we hope to get to a point where they can apply zero fertilizer, just spray on this little bacteria, which again is naturally occurring in the soil anyway. And what's also great about it is because this little bacteria is naturally occurring, it attaches to the roots of the corn, it actually works better than nitrogen fertilizer, especially in a changing climate where we get more and stronger bursts of rain in the Midwest that tend to wash away the nitrogen fertilizer and just pollute the rivers and the lakes without even helping to grow the corn. So you get a better crop with higher yield with less greenhouse gas emissions, less pollution. Fantastic product. Another one that I'll mention is 75F. This is one that I'm involved in where where I sit on the board. 75F has a mix of hardware and software solution that creates a a really inexpensive but very powerful building management system. Many buildings in the U.S., small and medium size commercial buildings, which which is actually 70% of total commercial space in the U.S., don't have a building management system. They don't have a, a computer system effectively that's running the HVAC. And it just makes the HVAC run a lot less efficiently to not have that. So this company has built a very inexpensive, very easy to install software-defined hardware system with an AI, with a machine learning system in the cloud that runs the HVAC system. Runs it great, makes the building more reliable, saves about 20% of the energy in the building just by running the same equipment better. Very cheap and easy to install. It's a fantastic product. Well, I definitely have more questions along these lines, but maybe switching gears for a moment, we talked about the BEV origin story, but what's the Matt Eggers origin story? Because you you weren't always focused on climate professionally. So I guess start wherever you'd like, but it'd be great to hear how you got into doing the work that you're doing and what you did prior that led up to this work. Well, I guess for that, I've got to go back to when I was a kid. I grew up on a farm in Iowa and I did a lot of hunting and fishing. We had a forest in the in behind the house and a pond 
and I just always had a deep affection for nature, which also translated into an affection for biology and just living things in general and ecosystems. And so I translated that into wanting to work in healthcare. My dad was also a doctor in addition to being a farmer. So that was something that I heard about at home a lot, was interested in. And in the sixth grade, I wrote a paper for career day saying I wanted to be a genetic engineer at Genentech someday. So I kind of pursued that path, ultimately decided that the business side of biotech was a better fit for me. So my first roughly 10 years of my career was in, was in biotech and I ended up working at Genentech, but my, I guess. Did you show them that letter as I didn't. part of the interview process? <laughs> no, no, I didn't. I, you know, I wish I still had a copy of that. Maybe my parents do somewhere. I should ask them. It'd be fun to find it. But I was still always very concerned about, you know, at the time, this was pre-climate change, maybe in the 80s, just about environmental destruction, right? Loss of habitat, pollution, those, those sorts of things. But it was in the 80s that James Hansen testified to Congress and said climate change is going to be a huge problem. We've known about this for decades. So that got on my radar. And as time went on, the news about climate change and the lack of action of the world's governments and economies started to distress me more and more and more. And it got to the point in 2006 where I was working on this incredible cancer drug at Genentech called Herceptin that was saving the lives of 40-year-old women with breast cancer. And I loved what I was doing. But I felt like, you know, there's any number of brilliant people at Genentech that continue to work on this. And we're saving these women's lives to put them back, keep them living on a planet that we're killing, that we're, we're causing massive, massive damage to. And that seemed to me the meta problem, the bigger problem, the problem to end all other problems. And there was starting to be investment in that space in the mid 2000s and business activity. And I felt like I could go make a big difference in that if I tried. So I walked in Genentech one day, quit my job. I used to listen to the Star Wars theme on the way to work as I was psyching myself up to do this. And I was like, it's not like there was a single evil empire out there, but it felt like this big problem. And I had to psych myself up to change course and, and go try to fix it. But I did. And so I've been doing this stuff since 2006. But mostly until BEV, mostly on the operating side, right? Mostly on the operating side. Yeah. In fact, until BEV, my clean tech or climate tech, whatever you want to call it, involvement has been only operating. I guess I did some angel investing along the way as well. And I guess reflecting on having lived through the first clean tech bubble and arguably a hangover that still exists even to this day, as climate is starting to show up on people's radar with a, a more pressing urgency than ha seemingly has existed previously. What lessons do you take from the, the first bubble and all the money that was lost that you carry with you as you think about climate investing looking forward? Some of the mistakes that were made were investors that didn't have as deep of a technical understanding of these areas started investing in them. And they were also expecting things to go just like they do for enterprise software and consumer internet companies before. And that's that's not exactly how these things work. Like we talked about a few minutes ago, they frequently take more time and money than building just a software company might. We think about that and how we form syndicates around these companies and the expertise that we have that evaluates them and how we support them, the partnerships that we form with other big companies that can help support these companies and bring that technology to life. And I guess before we dive deeper into innovation's role in the climate fight, maybe it'd be good to just talk a bit about the problem. So 
How do you think about the climate problem and how do you think about it differently from you did when you first entered the space many years ago? Like I said, I think it is the problem to end all other problems. If we continue to disrupt the climate, we'll make the world a much more hazardous place. And one way I like to think of it is what the U.S. Department of Defense and the CIA says, which is a, it's a threat multiplier. If the glaciers in the Himalayas melt and India is short of water, that's going to be a massive problem for world security, safety, and economic development. You know, One of many, many examples we could think about. So from an investor standpoint, I just think about every dollar that a, that a person, an individual, or a company spends creates emissions. And so it's the entire economy. And anything that we can do to fix that just makes things more efficient, which is better for the economy. You can take a very capitalistic approach to this and just say, let's squeeze out the waste of the economy. Let's find cheaper ways to find energy. Like the sun shines all over the world. You know, there's analysis that was done decades ago that a tiny corner of Arizona receives enough sun every day to power the whole country if we knew how to harness it, enough energy from the sun. And if you ever see a utopian futuristic movie, the air's not polluted. There's no horrible smog. There's no desperate chase for energy. There's no dirty water that people are drinking because they accept that in order to get oil out of the ground. There's no massive destruction of ecological resources in the name of quote unquote progress. That's not the world that any of us want to live in. And it's not the world we have to live in. And I think that engineering and technology and industrialization has done enormous, enormous good for humankind. It's also done a lot of bad, but technology and engineering got us into this problem and it will get us out of it. I firmly believe that. I mean, I've heard some people have come on the show and argued that we need to exit the industrial age. How do you think about that? I could both agree and disagree with that. I think we do need to exit the industrial age. I think we we need to stop harming ourselves so much in the production of goods and services. You know, I think that will lead to a much better world for everybody. But I don't think that means shutting down capitalism. I don't think it means that we'll have to stop flying, that we'll have to stop using electricity or figure out how to use less of it. I just don't think we can make that happen in the world. There's still billions of people that don't even get to eat the way we do here in the United States and have access to the internet and to all the information and all the opportunities that we have. And I, I don't think we can stop them from getting there, nor do I want to. But I do think that we can figure out how to do that without damaging the planet that sustains us. Well, two frames that I'd like to bring up for contrast on how to think about the problem one is that it's a huge systems problem and that everything is interrelated and that pushing on any one thing is going to help facilitate pushing on everything else, but they all matter. So the big things matter, the small things matter, the innovation things matter, the policy things matter, the consumer behavior things matter, the government things matter, like it all matters. So that's kind of one perspective. The other perspective that I've heard certain investors stand up on stages and say is that there's a handful of fundamental things that need to change and that those are the things that matter. And otherwise, it's just kind of business as usual. How do you feel? There are a handful of things that matter the most. We can look at where the emissions come from and we can see that you know, a handful of things, production of steel, production of fertilizer, production of concrete, for example, are massive, massive contributors. So it makes sense to put a ton of effort into fixing those things that are huge contributors. Coal-fired power plants, another obvious one. You know, I think most people know that. So the ones I, I'm noting are sort of the non-obvious ones. So we've got to fix those things. But 
like I said, it's such a big problem and it's such a widespread problem that every little bit helps. So when people debate whether, for example, innovation or deployment is more important, or someone says, yeah, that greenhouse gas problem, whatever it is, pick something, dairy, for example, dairy is a huge greenhouse gas problem. That's not the top priority. We shouldn't spend time on it. I'm thinking we need hundreds of billions and millions and millions of people working on these problems. Of course, if someone's interested in that problem, they should work on it. Mm -hmm. And if they fix it, they'll help reduce the greenhouse gas problem. And there's almost always positive externalities of fixing greenhouse gas problems, cleaner air, cleaner water, less waste in the economy, better products. I mean, Tesla is a great product. It's faster and safer than an usual car. You know, it's very rare that I see in the things we think about negative externalities. And it's very rare that I don't even see a lot of positive externalities, products that are just better in, in addition to reducing greenhouse gas. I guess this is back with an investor lens, but if there were a potential breakthrough technology that could have a big impact on the problem if it's successful, but that requires some type of price on carbon for it to ever be cost competitive, does that rule it out as a candidate for breakthrough energy ventures? No, it doesn't rule it out. The vast, vast majority of our investments as of now and probably in the near future do not assume a price on carbon. We don't assume any regulatory structure at all that doesn't exist today. And even if it does exist today, we, you know, we often question, will it continue to exist? Is it going to run out? Is it going to change? We want to invest and build companies that will succeed based on the world as it is today without some major assist from the government. That said, I personally believe thinking 10 years out, which is the time frame for most venture investments, that it's really likely that there is significant regulatory change with regard to greenhouse gas, a price on carbon and or significant renewable portfolio standards, clean fuel standards, like in California, low carbon fuel standards, those sorts of things. I just think the problem is getting so intense awareness in voters, consumers, and companies is growing. The push for action is getting really strong. And the evidence of the problem is getting really strong. In all along the Atlantic seaboard, the coastal towns are getting swamped by water on a regular basis from king tides, the fires in California, the hurricanes, the droughts. People are starting to see like, oh shit, nature is changing. Wow. And so it's just, it's becoming a problem that we can't hide from anymore and we can't run away from anymore. So I think it's really unlikely that in 10 years, we don't have some significant regulatory push behind these things. It's already happened. You know, it's happened in many states with renewable portfolio standards, for example. So even if it doesn't happen at the federal level, I think it's, if it happens in California and New York and Massachusetts and Maryland and Washington, that is a gigantic economy. What are those states added together? Like the third or fourth largest economy in the world. So if they continue to do a bunch of stuff, you'll have massive regulatory tailwinds. And investors like us and any other venture capitalists tend to bet on the contrary, unlikely, but potentially huge outcome. That's what every single venture investment is. And so if we invest in a few companies that are depending on, on that, like maybe a carbon capture company, maybe that doesn't happen. And so the company is dead in 10 years. But if it does, and that company has spent that time building an incredible technology and an incredible team and a business model that works, that's a multi, multi-billion dollar outcome. And that's what in venture investors do. 
Is it fair to say that the areas that you pick and the solutions that you try to back are the ones that you believe are the most important ones within innovation on the climate change problem? Yes, I think so. I mean, that's why we focus on those five grand challenges that I that I mentioned before. And, and that's why we have the half a gigaton requirement for each investment. And one of the things that I've been wrestling with is, so I get that those are the most important areas if you stack rank within innovation, but where does innovation fit stack ranked with the other areas like policy or R&D or changing consumer behavior, et cetera, on the overall problem? How do you think about that? It's a question that gets asked a lot. And I think it's, I think all of it matters is the easy answer. And when people start to shout, it's like the uh, the old taste great, less filling debate that used to happen at, in football stadiums in the 80s, taste great, less filling. It's both. And there's there's nothing that's more important than the other, I don't think, in the innovation versus policy versus deployment. Maybe with one exception, if if I was king of the world, and you said, what one thing would you do for climate change? I would put a high price on carbon. That's the simple, most powerful thing. But that would spur the innovation, right? Why would you do that? To spur innovation. Once you internalize those costs, there would be massive innovation driven by economic need to reduce the emissions. So I don't, I don't frankly, personally put a lot of thought into taste great, less filling, deployment or innovation. I think they're deeply intertwined and we need both. And do you think there's sufficient funding going into climate innovation today? No. By a little bit? <laughs> By a lot. We see so many great entrepreneurs, so many great companies that I wish we could fund. You know, I wish we had a $10 billion fund, and I wish there were five other $10 billion funds doing what we're doing. What do you think is holding back that capital from coming in? I mean, surely it's not greed or else it would be here already. It's true. I think, well, part of it is the experience from the mid-2000s when a lot of investors lost a lot of money in thin film solar and biofuels. And I note that you know we don't have any investments in those spaces right now. So that's part of it. The other part is expertise. The innovation economy in the US has largely been built around Silicon Valley and the copycats of Silicon Valley. And first it was semiconductors and then the internet and software. And that's what those folks know how to do. So if you ask them to go evaluate a electrolysis approach to making hydrogen, or you ask them to evaluate a gene engineering approach to making casein so you can replace milk, there's not a lot of expertise to understand that. And so that translates into high risk. We're also taking on these big entrenched industries that have, have a hundred year head start in making things really easy and cheap. And so that's a hard problem. But I think as someone that's doing this work, I believe that we'll generate a good venture return. This is a differentiated product. It's a differentiated approach to the market. I'd much rather be finding the founders that we're finding, investing in these markets, which are some of the largest markets in the world. I mean, things like that I mentioned, like steel, concrete, fertilizer, food, buildings, construction. These are the mothers of all markets. They're big. And if we have breakout technologies and founders, we stand to make a lot of money for our investors and for our founders. So I have confidence that what we're doing is differentiated. And I'd, I'd much rather be chasing that than be the 197th fund raised in the last two years trying to go after enterprise software. So I understand that that gives you a differentiated position, but if you've got a little over a billion fund and you wish you were 10x that and you wish there were 10 of those, that means that you wish there was 100x more capital in the space than there is today. 
what are the most impactful things that we could do or that someone could do if, if they had a magic wand to help unlock that capital to fill this void? Well, the first magic wand or king of the day thing would be to have a carbon tax. So there's that policy approach. I think impact investing is something that often doesn't get talked about when people think about what could I do? And this isn't a magic wand thing, but but a whole lot of little ones can turn into to a big thing. I think everyone that really cares about this problem, even if they're not willing to change their day job to go work directly in it, they should look at their capital, especially you know a lot of the wealthy folks that might listen to your podcasts, investors, people that have worked at tech companies that have been very successful, that sort of thing. They should be investing for impact. 100% of their portfolio, I would argue, should be an impact. That could be as simple as a switch to an ESG fund to invest in public markets, which has lots of issues. We could spend a whole podcast, maybe you have or maybe you will, on dissecting the imperfections of ESG investing, but it's certainly better than nothing. But they could also create funds. They could go find investors and say, I want to put $100 million behind you. And as more of that money shows up, more founders will enter this space. More folks in universities will spin out technologies and companies that could have this impact. And they don't do it today because there's not 100 venture capitalists crawling around the campus looking for deals like there are in some other areas. So I think impact investing in the private markets and the public markets in debt is a huge thing that could have a, a very big impact at a collective scale and that, and that everyone should be doing that if they care about this problem. Going back to sort of the bigger picture magic wand, other than the carbon tax and other regulation, I think about continued innovation and continued deployment. You know, I think it's a it's a yes and of both. Focusing on these really hard problems, you know, I mentioned casein and milk a few minutes ago. How do we make casein in a way that's low GHG? That's a gigaton problem. If we put 500 world-leading biotech researchers on it, we would solve that problem, for example. So I know that in some cases you have either co-invested or had traditional VCs follow on to the investments that, that you've done. When I think about how to get more capital into the space, one path is awareness and educating traditional venture, for example, that there are opportunities over here that actually fit well into their profile. Another example is structural and, and saying like you guys did, 10 plus 2 is not the right answer. We're going to have a longer fund life cycle to account for the fact that some of these innovations take longer and require more capital. And then a third bucket is you had mentioned earlier in the discussion expertise and how that's a gap. So I guess which of those is the highest leverage thing to lean into? And if you believe that each of those is impactful, what are the things that we can do tactically to help facilitate those? So expertise, awareness, and structure. That might be the most complicated question I've ever asked in one breath. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm proud of that. Not really. So do you want me to say which one of awareness, expertise? I'm, I'm saying, so you talked about how there should be more capital and you talked about how expertise is often what holds these funds back, right? But then I look at your fund and you've also made some structural changes, right? But there's also some traditional VCs that are getting involved today without making any of those changes. And so like how much of it is just about awareness and not changing anything? Yeah, right? that's a good question. Yeah. I think awareness <laughs> is critical. And uh, let me say that structural change is important. And we have in investments that, that will take a really, really long time that the structural change is particularly important for. But 
for the vast majority of deals, we don't do a 20 year return analysis. We do a five, seven, maybe 10 year return analysis, just like any venture capital fund. So I would say that that 20 year life isn't the biggest thing that differentiates what we're doing and enable us, us to take the view that, that we're taking. I think awareness is a, is a critical, critical piece of it. And just belief in what I just said, that there are so many facets of the economy that we could impact in a positive way and going after them. I think about, I encourage people to think of what's interesting to you if you're thinking about as an investor or a potential founder or someone that wants to join a company in this space, what's interesting? Maybe you've always thought architecture was really interesting. Okay. So how do we build buildings? What problems do we create there from a greenhouse gas perspective? Well, one, there's massive embodied emissions in a building from the concrete and the steel, for example. Could we replace concrete and steel with something better? We could with wood. Could we design buildings? Could we write software that allows us to design buildings better and pick better products? Absolutely. There are companies doing that. Could we replace the wood with bamboo that grows in three years rather than 50? We could. There are companies out there doing that. So that's just one example of pick an area that's interesting and you will find potential technologies and solutions that can reduce emissions. Out of the areas that you're investing in, do you feel like all of them are a good fit with traditional VC or are there some types of the most impactful climate investing that is not the right fit for traditional VC? And if so, where does it miss the mark? I think probably the place where it misses the mark the most is the adoption and scaling is slower in many of these companies than, than it is in a traditional software company. Look how fast Slack got adopted, for example. It just takes someone getting an email or hearing about it, going to a web page and signing up. For a company that has to install atoms to make something happen, sell hardware, those things move naturally a lot slower. So there are less likely, I think, to be the the 1,000x returns in our portfolio than might show up in some of the best Silicon Valley venture firms. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. You just, when you're, when you're selling new electric cars, for example, you just don't get the scaling that you get from an enterprise software or, or from a viral consumer internet company. Then what makes you think that this type of investing is not concessionary on returns? So I'm not denying that the power law drives venture returns, that the returns are driven by the few outliers. But again, I go back to the differentiated approach here that I think these are big problems. They're some of the biggest markets in the world. So when you do hit a success, it might happen slower. But if it happens really big, eventually that still drives a gigantic return. So concessionary on patience, but not concessionary on upside. I think so. Yeah. And, and although we won't have as many we don't have the potential to have the thousand X return, I don't think, or at least not as frequently as as things that can scale faster because they're purely bits. I think there are a lot of things that could be huge that could be 10, 50, 100 X returns in our portfolio. And there aren't 100 other investors looking for them. And you might then say, well, why do you wish they were? Wouldn't that make it harder for you? And you know, from a economic perspective, no investor, no business person in any business is sitting there wishing like, gosh, I wish there were 10 other companies or firms or founders doing exactly what I'm doing. That would make my life easier, said by no one ever. You know, in this case, I'm both worried about the world and my children and the ecological systems that have evolved for millions of years, and I want them to be okay. So I want those funds. And as those funds come in, the founders will just replicate. There'll be more and more and more of them. 
so there'll be more opportunity. Just like in the 1980s, there wasn't, you know, how what total ventures is available right now, dry powder, I don't know, 50 billion. In 1985, you couldn't have deployed 50 billion in venture capital, right? As more capital came in, more founders, more ideas emerged. And we've talked about the venture asset class, but what about the later rounds for some of these more capital intensive businesses? It seems like today, those are either coming from strategics or in some cases, project finance. But how do you think about those big rounds that are beyond the scope of a venture or of a traditional venture or BEV? And, and what does the capital landscape look like there? It's a great question. And it's, it is a challenge. And I think you mentioned what's happening today that's largely solving that is strategics. So I think, you know, what I said a few minutes ago about in 10 years, do you really believe there won't be more regulation on carbon? I don't. And so I think the big, a lot of the big companies in these big industries that our companies are trying to change also think that the future is going to be very different for them than the past. And so they are aggressively investing in and supporting these companies. And that's a, a great source for the, the later stage capital when it, once deployment really starts happening and these companies need 50 or 100 million. The banks too. I mean, Goldman Sachs and another big bank, I forget, just announced a significant further tightening of their lending to fossil fuels, particularly to coal mining and coal-fired power plants. So if you're Goldman Sachs or any bank and you say, well, we have this 20 billion portfolio of, of lending to X industry and we're never going to do that again, does that mean they're going to shrink? By 20 billion? No, they're going to have to find something new to invest that in. And why are they doing that? I mean, is it is it just altruistic? I think it's a mix of altruism, but it's mostly business. Just like we were saying, I think they see the writing on the wall that these investments... They see the regulatory risk from the other side. Yeah, they see the risk, the risk of that investment because of regulatory risk and or consumer demand really growing. And so if building a coal plant used to be no, you know, there was no market risk. Now there is. Now there's market risk. Even if it's only a 20% risk, does that raise the, the return that you need on that coal mine to a level that you could never get in the spreadsheet that you build at Goldman Sachs to see if that's a good investment? Probably. So I think that's mostly driving it. But so then where are they going to put that $20 billion in assets as that debt starts to mature? They're going to have to find new things. What's going to replace it? Hopefully some of the stuff that we're investing in. And one of the concerns I vocalized to you last night at at dinner when we were chatting was just something I'm personally sorting through, which is how, you know, market forces will help facilitate the transition and could be the one of the most impactful levers we have. But also, I'm just sensitive to not profiting from catastrophe, but but actually trying to help with the problem. And I thought your your perspective and your way of thinking on that was interesting. So if you're comfortable, it'd be great to hear a bit about that. Sure. I think we were in particular talking about insurance in real estate, for example, in Florida or in California, where the fire risk is getting- Insurance and also uh, shorting, for example, uh, shorting. Uh, you know, housing that's mispriced due to climate risk yeah. as one example. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that's good. I think the faster- that individual home buyers, consumers, and so forth can realize, can see financial pain from making decisions that don't make sense in a world with a climate change, the faster they will become voters for policies and for politicians that support climate-appropriate policies. People famously vote for their pocketbook. This is why presidents in a good economy almost always win elections. And if climate change starts to hurt them in the pocketbook, they will change their opinion about what the country and other countries should be doing about climate change. Same thing goes for the banks. Same thing goes for equity investors and in public equities and investors in debt. 
when they start to lose money because climate change is impacting the value of their investments, they will change very quickly. And that's what we need. We need banks to change what they see as a good investment. We need individual buyers of homes and vehicles to decide, you know, if I buy this internal combustion car, its value when I want to sell it in five years might not actually be that great if electric cars are faster, sexier, and safer, and I never have to go to the gas tank to fill them up except on long road trips. Hmm, that sounds like pretty good. Maybe I won't buy this fossil fuel car because it's going to suck and resale. Those are the sorts of financial drivers and incentives that we need people to feel. So if, if you had $100 billion and you could allocate it towards anything to maximize its impact on the problem, where would you put it and how would you allocate it? I think that I would definitely invest some of it behind some of these big challenges. Could you create programs with that money, something like an XPRIZE to, you know, I'd create 50 XPRIZES for folks to solve some of these major greenhouse gas challenges reward people for for innovation on on some of the little things that aren't that aren't so obvious embodied emissions in in building construction for example is one that we talked about or 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 casing cheese being a big issue but those are solvable problems technology can advance and solve those problems so if we have the right financial incentive it'll happen and then i would i would put a huge amount of that on trying to influence elections so that the right people were elected with the right incentives to, to take action. As someone that's worked in this area for a long time and continues to with a really interesting perch, are you an optimist that we're going to be able to get out of our own way as a species to do the things that we need to do in the timeframes that we need to correct the problem? I think in the long term, over 100 plus years, I'm an optimist. I think we're going to go through a lot of pain and suffering in the meantime. I think humanity's had some pretty rough eras and ages before in the course of history, and I think we are unfortunately past the point of avoiding that, probably in the middle to later part of this century. But I do think that we are we're ultimately altruistic and good and and self-preserving, and I think that we are showing ourselves incredibly capable of solving hard problems. And I think we'll eventually figure out this is a problem that we need to solve and get to work on it at the scale that it's needed, and we'll solve it. But I do think we'll go through a lot of pain and suffering as a species, as a planet, as a civilization. And I think we'll end up having major changes and negative impacts to civilization in the meantime. Well, given that, then how do you think about and how does BEV think about the role of adaptation? It's a great question. So that's not what we're focused on. We are focused on innovation to mitigate doesn't mean it's not an important problem. I think it is a very important problem. And I, I know a lot of people are thinking about it and working on it. And that's a good thing. Is that true? Yeah, I think so. A lot relative to the dollars and no. time being put into mitigation? Probably not. But these are the kinds of things that happen on a, uh, some of the ad adaptation stuff I think happens on a micro basis that it's just hard to see. The town that I live in, Lurksburg, California, has an ordinance. If your home's below a certain seafoot level, you can't do any work to it. You basically can't remodel or expand it or anything unless you raise it by a certain amount. Does that make the news? Is that a dollar invested? Is that, what is that? I don't know. It's adaptation though. I think those sorts of things are happening more frequently than we think. You know, many, many Florida towns have passed significant bond measures to invest in raising streets already. It's happening now, building seawalls, building new pumping stations, that sort of thing. I haven't seen anybody that's summarizing that or adding it up, and I don't even know how you would 
count the economic value of the Larkspur ordinance that I that I just stated, but I think it's happening. And last question is just for anyone listening who wants to help with the problem and doesn't necessarily know how, what advice do you have for them? I think there's there's probably some things they can do right away. Impact investing is one. They should sit down tonight or tomorrow and look at their portfolio and figure out how they have their money speak for their values. Money drives the world, um, for better or worse. How does that happen tactically? How does that happen tactically? Yeah. So like if I, I don't know, because a lot of people, they, they pick from a menu from their employer's 401k list. So, uh, you know, if there's not an ESG option on the menu, for example, then what does one do? Which in most cases, I bet there are not. Yeah. So in my last company, I pushed and pushed and pushed until there was an ESG option on the menu, for example. So they can start to do that, push for those options and get their their coworkers and so forth to do the same. And if there is one, they should certainly take advantage of it. Then if there's not, or for the rest of their capital that's not there, there are a lot of things to do. Invest in an ESG option for higher net worth individuals, find impact hedge funds. They are definitely out there. I could recommend one. Invest in funds and maybe folks who are thinking about starting a new fund in this area, offer to support them to invest in these sorts of entrepreneurs. What else? Vote. <laughs> yeah, vote. Vote and donate. And make it known that this is an important issue. Don't just assume that your elected representative at any level thinks that it's an important issue. It matters at every level, local, state, and national. So get out there and let your elected political officials know that climate change is an important issue to you. And then press for change in your own company. Many companies can do things that are better or worse for climate change. And so, again, just you don't need to lead a walkout necessarily, but you can just let the leadership of your company know that these are important issues and you want them to err on the side of making climate responsible choices. So two things that I didn't hear you say, I didn't hear you say change your behavior and I didn't hear you say offset the rest. Are those intentional omissions? Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think of the things that people don't haven't already heard a million times. But those can be impactful? I think they can be impactful, right? Changing your behavior is a, is a tiny thing in the world of 7 billion people, but all 7 billion of us need to do it to the extent that we can. And in that area, I think the most important things are if you own a home, put solar on the roof if you can and make it highly energy efficient. Put in great windows, insulate, put in a heat pump for your heat, start to electrify, start to think about electrification, electrifying everything that you can in your home. There's no conceivable near-term way right now to make natural gas heating, greenhouse gas neutral other than air capture. So electrify your home and make it highly efficient. Electrify your vehicle, probably the next thing that I would focus on. And you know, then there's a host of other things. Try to fly less, try to eat lower on the food chain, there's probably much better sources for those things that, than me too. So do, do you have similar thoughts then about, for example, technology that identifies methane leaks in natural gas infrastructure to more efficiently repair them or technology that captures fossil fuel emissions at point of emission? If they're very carefully selected and vetted, then I think carbon offsets can be useful. I just get concerned that most of those, I have two concerns. One, that many of those schemes are not very carefully selected and vetted to ensure additionality. And the second is, again, this gateway drug idea. It's like, oh, 
especially with companies, I worry about this more than with individuals. But, but, oh, but you I, have that same concern for those other things I mentioned? Like, for example, if, if we can better plug the leaks on methane, is that going to disincentivize us from getting off of natural gas as expediently? No, if, I, I don't, I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about it slowing us from getting off natural gas. I'm worried that that the utility was probably going to be forced to do that or should have been forced or was already breaking the regulation anyway. And a better way to do that would have been to get the city to measure methane leaks and enforce the regulations on the books to plug those to plug those leaks. I'm not suggesting that those would be offset projects. I hear you. Yeah. It's, it's more just, I hear similar knocks from some of those areas like, oh, if we, if we can decarbonize fossil fuel, it's just going to be an excuse to keep mining for it and burning it. Yeah. It's a tough one. There are a lot of perverse incentives and moral hazards that we can create in this area. I don't think about that as much with offsets as I do worry about the big company buys a bunch of offsets and announces to the world, we're carbon neutral. And now management, employees, customers, investors are like, oh, great. That company's carbon neutral. They've done the right thing. That's bullshit. They are not carbon neutral. They've done very, very, very little. It's just greenwashing. And now all those people that might have been pushing that company to actually do something that matters are confused and misled and they stop. And that's the big problem with offsets. Anything I didn't ask you that I should have or any parting words for listeners? I do feel like there's a, a groundswell of uh, folks right now coming from other industries, from traditional tech industries that are interested in this area. And I think it's really exciting. We need many more founders and entrepreneurs. And I think uh, they can apply their skills and expertise to all these companies. All these folks have software backgrounds. Almost every company today is a software company at some in some way and some at some level. So I think there's probably more opportunities to join companies than they think there are, or, or to be co-founders in these companies. And I think there's a groundswell of interest in impact investing from family offices, from big corporates that are creating funds. And I think there's opportunities over the next few years for folks to raise more capital to invest in these kinds of companies. So I just hope that that groundswell continues and that people work hard and use their imagination and their and their agency and their grit to find these opportunities and make them happen. Awesome. Well, this was a fascinating discussion. Thanks so much, Matt, for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. I love that you're doing this and good luck. Keep it up. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.